Welcome to the Get Sub Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. Today, we're joined by Mimecast's regional CISO for APAC, Mark O'Hare. Mark joined us back in October 2020 for a conversation on the CISO challenges in a public company. Today, we get into persona types for CISOs, the technical, the compliance, and the risk CISO, and how that shows up in an organization. We talk MITRE attack framework and how and why that is useful. And we get into the wonderful world of risk analysis models, including a discussion on the utility of fair or factor analysis of information risk, which has become a bit of a darling of the industry. We talk through why it's good and some of where it falls short. Over to the conversation. Welcome to the Get Sub Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara, and this week I'm very, very happy to welcome a repeat guest who is Mark O'Hare, a regional CISO for APAC. How are you doing today, Mark? Really good. Thanks, Gar. And thanks again for having me on the uh, Get Cyber Resilient podcast. Great to be here. It's absolutely wonderful to have you on. I'm glad we get to record the conversations that I feel like we end up having uh, off mic so often about some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. So <laughs> very much looking forward to it. Um, for listeners, Mark has been on before. If you go back to season two, uh, Mark was actually episode 36. So you can f- hear his his full and varied journey to get to the point where he is our original CISO for Mimecast. So We'll take a shortcut today and um, and sort of get straight in. Um, Mark, one, one of the things, uh, one of the many things that sort of you and I have been talking about and you've been helping our organization understand is around the different types of CISOs. And um, that idea that obviously, like most roles, everybody isn't the same. There's a human factor. There's a, a history factor, you know, where people have come from before. Um, but I found your your kind of categorization or how you think about CISOs and security leadership really interesting. It'd be great to uh, hear from you like in, and how you've kind of categorized CISOs by their persona or types and kind of walk us through those and, and even how they operate differently. Yeah, sure, Carl. Um, so, I mean, I'll start this by saying, you know, broadly speaking, all CISOs are some blend of the, the um, personas that I will discuss. There is no right uh, or wrong here. It is just my observations over you know, sort of the last decade of working with, um, working with security people and in the security industry. So the way I like to uh, categorize the three major groups of, of CISOs that I, I typically come across is um, we have the Technical, uh, technical track CISO, which I feel at this moment is still the most common CISO that I come into contact with. Um, and these are folks who are likely to report into the CIO and the CIO's organization. Um, they have a strong IT control and technology focus, um, in their, in their backgrounds. Um, great technical skills and knowledge. They've often grown up through the, the technical track initially and moved into um, security. Um, they're often also, because they're working in the CIO's uh, remit, they often are quite influenced by the CIO's um, agenda themselves um, and, and fall under the, the vision of the CIO to an extent. And that can be a can be a positive or a negative, you know, depending on the type of CIO you're reporting into. Um, so, so that's the technical um, CISO. Uh, then there's the compliance-based CISO, which I see as the sort of the least common CISO that I come across. Um, but they've typically come from a, a background of, of compliance, and therefore compliance becomes the security team's objective. Um, they're using standards um, to 
prioritize and motivate um, projects. Um, they're using uh, tick boxes often to, you know, to uh, ensure that they are meeting the requirements of the standards that uh, that they align align with. So they will have chosen a risk framework. Um, they will common commonly understand that risk framework really really well. Um, and um, you know they'll be looking for compliance-related outcomes, so passing audits and um, yeah, like I said, meeting the requirements of the standards that they've chosen um, to align with. And then um, the third uh, broad category, um, and bear in mind this is a Venn diagram as well. Each of these roles um, overlap in parts with uh, with the others. There's no such thing as purely a technical CISO or purely a compliance CISO. So the third one is the risk CISO. And again, there's no um, risk-only CISO. Um, so this risk CISO, uh, they typically focused on reducing um, you know, surface factors. The, the, um, they're in, interested in, in gathering um, metrics and 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 uh, using data analytics to understand um, where they need to prioritize their efforts. So they will have a strong um, risk analysis methodology that will then help them understand where they where they should be applying resources. Um, you know, typically, that's uh, people and processes and and technology. Um, Far less control, uh, concerned about the actual IT control or the technical control that's being implemented. They're more focused on the outcome of that thing, whatever it, it might be. Um, and the reporting lines of, a, of that type of CISO and the organization that they typically work in, which is, uh, again, more, uh, more likely to be, uh, a more risk mature enterprise type, um, organization, they may not actually report into the CIO. In fact, it's unlikely that they do. Um, and their reporting lines will typically be CFO, um, chief risk officer or CEO type, um, uh, reporting lines. Um, and, um, yeah, so the, so those are the three, um, personas, sort of technical compliance and risk, um, personas that, that I've seen over the, over the years. Now, while there are these three different types of CISOs, all of them will be concerned with um, efficacy of their security controls that they've put in place, the efficiency of those controls, um, and and you know maintaining their team's credibility. So uh, while they may have different ways of coming at the problems, um, at the end of the day, they're all concerned with the the same types of of things. You know, the organization not getting breached, not having data loss events, and and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely get that. You sort of describe that as a, a Venn diagram. And, mm. you know, when I think about that, it's a point in time with circles of a certain size. As you kind of think forwards and maybe, you know, coming from the past and, and we're at a point in time and then going forward, which which of those circles do you think is getting bigger in terms of like popularity or approach? Or, or do you even see any trends in, you know, in terms of what persona types or what, what's been seen as most valuable as a CISO type? Yeah, I think I am observing trends there. Um, it's, uh, 
not terribly obvious, um, but what I am seeing is a move more towards the um, risk-focused uh, CISO mm. and kind of a, a away from the more um, technical uh, CISO. Um, and, and I think that is as organizations become more mature around risk in general and start rolling their cybersecurity program into their overall uh, risk program, it helps to have a... Um, a manager or a leader of the security team that is also risk focused uses that as their way of um, focusing their priorities and aligning resources and building their projects around that sort of stuff. So I would say that um, that is probably the persona that is gathering the most momentum. But I yep. do feel on the that that the technical CISO is still the most the most common. Um, you know. Typically in the smaller uh, SMB space, uh, it's very technical focused and in the enterprise and much larger organizations or, or more mature, maybe not necessarily larger, but more mature on a risk, um, uh, in their risk um, processes, then that's where you will see uh, more of those CISOs emerging. Awesome. As you're talking through that, one of the things I suspect shows up is maybe differences in leadership style. And, mm. you know, somebody who's very technical versus somebody who's maybe more, you know, when I think of, of sort of risk, you almost think of like, um, you know, actuaries and, you know, people who are sort of very good at numbers and, and sort yeah. of that, you know, almost insurance mindset. Um, it'd be great to hear, like, if you've observed or sort of seen in your day-to-day, -day, like different leadership styles showing up with those different persona types. Yes, I know, ab absolutely. Um, so in terms of the, the technical CISO, what we tend to see there is that they are very focused on tactical and operational security. So they are yep. pretty hands-on on the, on the tools or at least asking, um, you know, very technical questions of, of their teams to understand, to understand what's going on. Um, and, uh, they may also have shifting priorities based on, you know, the current concern. And that may be their own personal concern around some, uh, something around security or, you know, what's, what's the industry talking about at the moment? Oh, we better get on board with uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, they have this le less strategic focus and it's more sort of um, tactical and operational focus. And obviously that is then the way they will lead their, lead their teams. On the risk side of things, you know, often the, the risk leaders that they've come from things like, um, uh, areas like military or law enforcement or other senior management fields. Um, and that influences their, their leadership style for, for sure. Um, they will be very data and metrics driven. So they're less interested in, um, the tools that the, their teams are using and, and how that tool operates, they're more interested in the outcomes of the use of those tools. Are these things, you know, can we show through data and, and metrics that um, these tools that we are using are appropriate for the job? Are they meeting our our team's objectives, you know, and they, they're not likely to get involved in proof of concepts. You know, they, they're going to leave that up to the technical team to, to run the proof, proof of concepts. And, but they, they will then want to see the results of, of that through metrics and, and data analysis to show that the tool is the right thing. It's going to do the, the expected, um, job. The, the risk focus, he so also, um, I think they, they see the benefit of a, an uh, ecosystem approach. So we'll have their teams work on a systems of systems approach and we'll push their teams to integrate 
all of their security investments as best as they can to try and get that, um, you know, the, the, um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts approach to, to the systems that they're, that they're implementing. So it's more a strategic view, um, and a street strategic focus and leadership through strategy and understanding the team understands strategy. And then, uh, the rest of the team are more focused on the sort of tactical and operational aspects of, uh, of the program. Yeah. No, I get you. I get you. Let's, let's change tax uh, completely. You, you've you've <laughs> sort of um, been doing some interesting work that uh, you were kind enough to, to chat to me uh, off mic about. Um, mm-hmm. And it's around the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And it, look, that's been around for, for quite a while now. I think it's 2015 yeah. when it sort of came out uh, originally. And it's, like, it's been just incredibly popular and, and widely adopted and, and feels like mm. it's become the language of our uh, our industry. Yeah. Um, why do you think it is that we kind of saw that, you know, just massively widespread adoption? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, even before 2015, I think they started earlier, maybe a couple of years b- before that, but you're right. It's been a, it has been around a long time, um, and still remains relevant today. So I think it's popular because it, it's evolved with the, the threat landscape. Um, so, you know, it's, because it's evolving, it does remain relevant over time. And it's based on real world observations. So these are, um, you know, the, the, the framework is built around analysts who have investigated many, many real world breaches and have, uh, worked out this, um, the attacker's life cycle, um, and, uh, kept it, kept it up to date over time. It also allows security professionals to, to understand attacker models and the methodologies, as well as the, the mitigations, um, for, uh, you know, against the attacker's methodologies, um, through MITRE's published, um, tactics and, and techniques. Uh, it also provides for us a, a common language or, or taxonomy uh, for security professionals to use, but also uh, not just security professionals, but organizational alignment around what's happening. I, I think organizations can quite well understand um, the the MITRE framework. It's pretty it's pretty simple. Um, to, to, to understand in, at, at a high level. Um, so that has certainly helped there as well. Um, it also provides for us a, a great baseline for implementing a broad range of controls, again, a, across that uh, attacker's um, li- uh, life cycle. Um, it helps identify where the organization's weaknesses and gaps in their program are um, and allows you to go fix those, those weaknesses and gaps. Um, it, directs you in where to focus your your um, prevention efforts, your detection efforts, your response activities. You can then take logs from your security systems and figure out which of the um, tactics and techniques, MITRE's tactics and techniques that you can actually uh, detect and identify and alert on. Um, and this gives your SOC uh, tremendous visibility into an ent- the entire attacker's life cycle and, you know, it gives you multiple points at which to, um, to prevent and, uh, and, and detect, um, critically detect, uh, when an attacker is, uh, has breached or is is uh, is sniffing around your your environment? Yeah. Do you think there's something there, um, like you mentioned, the tactics and techniques and, and the MITRE attack framework is is you know I mean, it's available online. It's very very detailed. Yeah. Um, you know you can go levels deep in terms of um, the tactics and techniques, and as you say, kind of go end to end. 
Is there, like, have you ever used in, in the past anything that kind of compares in terms of that level of detail? Because I know there's other threat models and, and frameworks out there, you know, the Stride. There's a bunch of different ones out there, but they, they feel more like their approaches and, and sort of high level, whereas um, the MitreTrack framework just seems to have that level of detail that, you know, opens it up as a useful tool in a way that others don't. Yeah, Is that yeah. fair to say? or Totally, totally fair to say. I mean, yeah. Stride... You know, spoofing, tampering, repudiation, uh, information disclosure, denial of service, elevation of privilege. That's that's your you know your six yeah. uh, your six threats, and uh, you contrast that with uh, with MITRE that has you know several hundred techniques. Mm. Um, so it's a much more granular uh, model for you to use. Uh, you know, again with Stride uh, and other threat modeling, you. You're trying to answer a question, the question of what can go wrong in the system we're, we're working on. Um, and that's essentially what the threat modeling is supposed to tell you. And, you know, you're looking at your assets and saying, well, because it's this asset and this is how it works and this is the data on there and the sensitivity of that, you know, you're, um, you're able to then come up with some sort of threat modeling around, um, what what can go wrong um but it is not nearly as granular as the as the mitre attack framework and um you know you may not be thinking of all the ways that an attacker will will actually attack the system and therefore what can go wrong in the system whereas mitre gives you many many um Tech, uh, techniques that you can actually go and specifically research. Okay. Are we vulnerable to this particular technique? Put a tick in the box. If we're, if we're not, okay. Can we detect if someone's abusing this technique? You know, if you can, yeah, put a tick in that box. You know, if not, uh, you're adding that to a list of, you know, we've got to go and put prevention in this place and detection. And, you know, what's our response if one of these things does, um, does happen? If, uh, if uh, one of these uh, threat actors does actually um, take advantage of of one of the the techniques, so it gives you far more granular um, understanding of the attacker's lifestyle. Uh, sorry, uh, life cycle. <laughs> and and probably their lifestyle comes from that because they're making tons of money. <laughs> That's right. Crazy their lifestyle is to, Lamborghinis <laughs> to drive fast cars. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, MITRE outside of the attack framework, I mean, they, they have such a broad range of other things that they've done outside of even cyber. It's just a, it's a phenomenal organization. One of the yeah. things as you're chatting there, uh, Mark, that occurs to me is that they've, it feels like it's hit a kind of critical momentum or a critical mass where because of that level of granular detail and because it's so widely adopted, it's, it's kind of utility increases because it is so well maintained. It's like, it is that kind of common framework that it, it hasn't um, it hasn't aged out, you know. It hasn't aged like milk. It's been yeah. it's been maintained and stayed relevant for that reason. And and one of the things you mentioned that I think is actually very important, but it's that idea of uh, commonality of language and how important that is for context within organizations for sure. But then as you're talking to you know peer CISOs in other organizations or as part of any associations you're in, like I'm guessing that that starts to light up a really good way to talk about potentially the same experience or data sets, but using that common language. So very keen to hear um, if you've got any perspective on how it's going to help your communications internally or, you know, with vendors, for example, or, or even with CISOs from other organizations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in terms of vendors, it's great when vendors' products will 
um, point you at the, you know, the, uh, so vendors' products logs will point you at the tactics and techniques that they are um, detecting along the way. That helps you as you are um, working uh, working against your mitre attack framework and um, trying to figure out whether you can um, prevent and detect things, whether uh, whether that product actually does what you're expecting it to do. Um, it also really helps your your security team. Um, understand what are the what are the things that we need to be doing, um, and um, find those gaps and plug those gaps quite quickly. So it does give you that common understanding across your team, across the the you know the cybersecurity um, industry, and and I think again the reason uh, why it's so popular is because it is it's if constantly evolving and it is based on real world observations. Um, so it's uh, very powerful from from that perspective. That you know, it's highly relevant um, to to today's world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, another, I suppose, another pivot, and I wanted to kind of circle back on on some of what you spoke about earlier in the conversation. Like you've been doing the CISO gig for quite some time now. And, you know, you've talked about that kind of the emergence of or the, the kind of rise in popularity of a, you know, air quotes, risk CISO, for want of a better expression. And um, would love to get your thoughts on how you've seen the use of kind of risk analysis change over the time you've been doing the gig of CISO. Sure. So, um, you know, Mimecast, we started with uh, ISO 27001 back in sort of 2010, 2011, uh, and we finally got certified in 2012. And as part of that, we started a, you know, risk management um, program. So we've had one in place for for a long time. Back in the day, it was uh, you know qualitative risk uh, analysis. That's using um, ordinal scales like uh, you know numbers one to five or green, yellow, red to describe uh, risks to your organization based on likelihood multiplied by impact. Um, it was quick and easy to do, um, but is very open to bias and kind of inconsistencies and it's highly subjective. Um, you know, and there's some other challenges that, uh, that came out with uh, qualitative uh, risk analysis, for example. You got a bunch of red um, got a bunch of red risks, which one is actually the reddest? Um, you know, answering those sorts of questions like how much risk do we have in the organization and, and as it relates to cybersecurity or are we spending too much or too little on security? You can't answer those sorts of questions with a, a one to five scale on risks or the, you know, green, uh, green, amber, um, uh, red sorts of scales. So, what I've seen is a, a shift more towards the um, quantitative risk analysis, and specifically, uh, you know, we use internally now we've shifted toward to to um, the fair model, um, and um, you know that addresses the the prioritization problem. What should we be working on um, by uh, through economic um, terms, you know, dollars and cents um, as the me measurement, rather than a a fairly arbitrary ordinal um, scale, you know, it gives a it gives a probable uh, loss exposure uh, for any given risk, and you know, along with uh, dollar values for that. So it becomes really powerful as you start talking to other stakeholders in the organisation. So it 
um, you know, we spoke yesterday about um, this uh, quantitative risk analysis, and I'd said to you, it's it's um, fantastic as you move into the organization. It's a fantastic way of bringing your risks to say the CFO and saying, you know, this is what our risks could cost us. And then you can measure that up against uh, some of the other risks that uh, other parts of the business are bringing you, you know, not investing or not investing in R&D or, or other other things that uh, the organization needs to invest in, marketing and sales and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so it gives you a great way to um, to present your risks in a well understood dollar, you know, economic terms. Um, and uh, I was sort of saying to him, it's, it's re less relevant uh, when your organization is not uh, a very risk mature organization. And, you know, so you don't get to uh, compare your risks with, uh, with other risks on financial terms. But I was thinking about that some more. And actually, even in isolation, even if it's just your security team, at least it helps your security team really prioritize their efforts. It is, it is easier to prioritize efforts based on uh, quantitative risk analysis and having, um, you know, um, some, some sort of uh, annualized loss exposure curves, those sorts of things. It, it really gives you much better laser focus on the things that you need to focus on as a security team. So not, e not even just for the mature um, organization that has, uh, you know, a, a more mature risk analysis program and risk committees and things like that, but actually is relevant even if in the, in the absence of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one of the things as I kind of look at FAIR that I, I think makes a lot of sense to me, and it might be just how my brain is wired, is that it sort of it codifies or provides a taxonomy for the conversation also, you know, and it yeah. gives a, a a fairly formalized approach to, I mean, it's it's an imperfect science, right? It's, I mean, partly part art in some points, but like yeah. it, it gives you a better way to get to that ultimate sort of dollar value for risk and also have the adult conversation to your exact point around, you know, what's the minimal expected maximum and yeah. then the most probable values, but that's... Yeah. That is so different from, you know, uh, the, the pretty colors. I mean, I think we'll all miss the the beautiful, <laughs> uh, you know, dashboards and heat maps, which uh, like I actually, you know, I'm kind of being frivolous there, but I don't think they go away. They, they still have value in terms of communication. So correct. And you can actually, con you can convert um, fair output into reds, ambers, and greens. It is, it, it's, it's quite easy to do that. Yep. Um, you know, and then when someone comes and says to you, like, how did you get to that red or amber or green? You can then dive into the details of your fair analysis of that particular risk and show yeah. them how you got there with, um, you know, with um, the, the uh, qualitative risk analysis. You can't really do that so well. It's not, it's not easy. And so I'll give you an example of um, fair output um, versus, uh, you know, non-fair output as it relates to a risk statement. So, um, so, so here's a CISO talking to the CFO and the, C the CISO says, uh, the threat of ransomware to our business has changed this year from a low to a medium. It's, or it's gone from a green to a yellow or it's gone from a one to a three. 
right? So that's the statement to the CFO. So we need X amount of money and the CFO has no idea whether they need that sort of money and you know what it's going to cost if this all goes wrong. Versus a fair uh, uh, risk statement is more along the lines of there is a 10% probability that our business will incur a loss of $150,000 in the next 12 months due to ransomware. So you're talking about the same thing, ransomware, but in the second statement there, you've really given this, the, the CFO um, the ability to understand what the impact in dollar terms and economic terms are to the organization. And then when you say, well, you know, we need uh, $100,000 for the technology that will prevent this, it's a much easier um, thing for the CFO to, to understand that risk and then either approve or deny the budget. And, and you raise an interesting point around, you know, the, the communication with the, the people who hold a checkbook quite often. And one of the things that has been a you know really long uh, going conversation in our industry is about, you know, business communications and how often, you know, you see CISOs struggling to get budget or to get uh, mm. approval for programs of works. And there's often been that conversation around, you know, the language used and converting it into, you know, simplified terms. Actually, what I think what you've just described is is actually what you're doing there is almost like translating it into meaningful language for a board or, you know, finance team so Correct. that they can actually understand the context of, you know, what's the risk, what's the cost and, you know, make that decision on spend versus not spend. But, you know, if they, if, if there is a decision not to spend, it's made with eyes wide open as it is if there is a decision to to to, uh, to spend. So it like, yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. So it's a database decision, you know, rather yep. than a subjective, this is what I think might happen. This is, you know, the likelihood uh, and this is the impact. I'm just taking a guess at those two things. Um, obviously, fair, you know, there's some subjectivity there as well. You are... Um, you are having to make some sort of educated, um, what I call educated guesses around things. But with FAIR, you, you know, you have things like what's the minimum number of, of times a year this might happen? What's the maximum and what's the most likely? And then you can model things between those three things. Like Monte Carlo um, simulations will allow you to, um, to model uh, the, the, the risks um, and your annualized loss exposure um, based on uh, those kind of, um, those inputs where you're able to vary the inputs and check. Okay. So, you know, what, how does that change the, the, the loss magnitude? If I change some of the inputs. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and things like, you know, without getting into the weeds, resistive, uh, strength and, and, you know, those kind of things where you, yeah. the, the things you can change, right. There's, there's some things you can control, some things you can't, but, um, you know, being able to change the ORS feeds right up into your point uh, about the overall overall risk. Be good to get your thoughts, actually. You know, because this you know this is very painting a very rosy picture of uh, <laughs> of uh, you know fair as a kind of risk analysis model. But you know, nothing's perfect. Be good to get your thoughts on any kind of gotchas or downsides to fair as a model. Yeah, I think uh, one of the negatives is that it's relatively um, simple. You know, so you got to. Um, just a few variables that are going in there. So some of the the feedback on it is it's it's like it's oversimplified. Um, but if you contrast that to the uh, the qualitative uh, risk analysis, it's you know that's even more simplified. So again, it's better than the previous way of doing it. Or you know when I say previous, lots of people are still doing the qualitative stuff, but I think the quantitative is gaining traction. And I feel that uh, 
you know, that does make it a, a stronger model. So there's that. There's also, like I mentioned, there is still some bias um, and inconsistency involved. If you get some different people inputting, um, you know, what's the what's the frequency, uh, say contact frequency, um, you know, someone might say, oh, probably 10 times a year. And another analyst may say, I think it's a hundred times a year. Um, but again, because you're using, um, sort of minimum, minimum, maximum and likely values, um, in there, you know, maybe the, the, the one person says, well, I think it's minimum is, is 10 and maximum is maybe, mm, 150 times in a year and the other person's saying well it's 100 and it's you know minimum is 100 maximums 200 there's still some decent over overlap in there but i think that is that can also be a problem is that it's there is some subjectivity in uh in inputting you know contact frequencies and probability of action and you know threat capability type stuff um so that there is a is a drawback, but like I said, the Monte Carlo simulation, which once you look into it, is actually not that difficult, um, tends to take care of that, and and you come out with a a probability. This is not an exact science. You know, none of us can predict the future, um, so we have to accept that. Uh, you know, we've got to we've got to do something, and and this is a this probability um, and annualized uh, loss exposure curves are a really good way of, of understanding it and eliminating a fair bit of bias and inconsistency. Yeah, definitely. And, and you, you sort of allude to the part of what FAIR addresses is the kind of accuracy versus precision problem also yeah. and, and the sort of temptation to, to put an exact yeah, amount on something when it's absolutely a guess. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, R risk is, it's uncertainty. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, and we, we it's, all need to make peace with that. I think it's, uh, and, and, and I think that can sometimes be harder because I think in life in general, <laughs> this is turning yeah. into, you know, an Oprah podcast, but, you know, people, people <laughs> feel better about certainty. That's just how we're wired as human beings, but actually that just doesn't exist quite often. Yes. Um, and one of the comments I've heard made um, in our industry is that you see the the sort of risk approaches that have worked for natural you know natural causes so you know hurricanes or floods try to be applied to things where you've got actually deliberate attackers these are you know they're they're thinking human beings sentience they're not it's not a random force of nature you know there's there's other mm. things at play here and then some of the models don't really work but it feels like fair goes to some way yes. to uh you know having that adult conversation around probability and this is guesswork and it will only ever yeah. be guesswork and um, and that's where we're at yeah yeah and that's what i think uh you know the risk-based CISO understands that um this is there is still some uncertainty in here um but actually we've got a fair bit of data that we've modeled this off and the data is telling us that these are the most likely or most probable things and probable outcomes and so this is where we really need to focus our our activities You've got to focus your activities somewhere. We all have limited resources, budgets, you know, um, uh, people in our in our team. So we've got to focus it somewhere. Uh, and this helps you, this kind of thing, this fair uh, analysis helps you focus on the right stuff. Phenomenal. Wise words to uh, to finish up here. Um, and, and as we're talking, I'm probably thinking, should we just record the the conversations we have in between your appearances on the podcast and then just going to do a mashup <laughs> of all the stuff that you say along the way? But um, Mark, so so good to to have you back on, and um, yeah, look forward to the the next time you're you're able to join us for another interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us. Great, thanks for having me. 
Thanks so much to Mark for joining us. And as always, thank you for listening to the Get So Resilient podcast. Jump into our back catalog of episodes and like, subscribe, and please do leave us a review. For now, stay safe and I look forward to catching you on the next episode. Thank you.